There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God. Amen. So in this series, we're taking the big questions that trouble people most about Christianity, and we've been talking about them. And this week, we're talking about the Christian teaching that God is a judge, and a judge that consigns people to hell. And there are several concerns that people have about this, but I think the main objection goes something like this. How can you possibly reconcile this idea, the, the concept of, of a judgment and hell with this idea of a loving God. Judgment and hell, loving God, how, I don't get it. How do they add up? How do they come together? What do we have to say about that? Well, over the years, several people have come to me and asked me what I believe about hell and, um, as a pastor. And, and I've told them, you know, well, first of all, probably, I don't think that the imagery that we see in the Bible about hell, fire, smoke, darkness. I don't think it's literal. It's probably metaphorical. And they go, and then I say, it's probably metaphorical for something infinitely worse than fire. (laughs) Huh? Yeah, so today I'd like to argue uh, three points that understanding what the Bible says about hell is crucial for understanding your own heart for living at peace in the world, and for knowing the love of God. And I know it seems really counterintuitive. In fact, each of those points kind of builds on each other and seems more counterintuitive than the last. We're going to spend most of our time, about three quarters of today, in that first point, and then quickly we're going to hit on the second two points toward the end. But um, I believe that God's going to say something to us, and I believe if you catch this today, it'll change your life. Um, So let's dive in. Number one, understanding what the Bible says about hell is crucial for understanding your own heart. In this parable, there are two main characters, a rich man and a poor man. And something that's really unique about this parable compared to all the other parables that Jesus taught is this is the only parable where somebody has a proper name. The rich man 
does not have a name, but the poor man, what's his name? Lazarus. Lazarus. Yeah. Good. You guys are paying attention. Nice. And you'd think, like, if you read this, you'd think if Jesus is going to go this route, he's going to give one of them a proper name, you'd think he'd give them both a proper name, yet this other one is just referred to as the rich man. Theologians say this is done deliberately. Why? Why would, why would the author of Luke do this deliberately? Well, in Israel at that time, the rich man could almost have not been, it's not possible he would have been an agnostic or an atheist or a pagan. He would have believed in the God of the Bible. He would have prayed to the God of the Bible. He would have obeyed the laws of the God of the Bible. But he's in hell without a name. Why? Verse 25 gives us a clue. Abraham says to him, you had your good things. Your highest, your best, your greatest, your, your, your things that you built your life on, you had them, past tense. They gave you value. And for years, philosophers like Immanuel Kant have talked about uh, something called the summum bonum, which is the highest good of your life, the greatest importance, your ultimate end, the main thing that you're living for. So let me ask you, what is... What is that main thing for you? What is your ultimate value? What is it that you're building your life on? What is it that gives meaning to your life and a sense of, of who you are? Whatever it is, whatever that ultimate value is for you, that is the thing that gives you your identity. Well, the rich man, he had, past tense, right? He had his good things. What was it? Well, status and wealth. He had riches. He was wealthy. That was the basis for his identity. But now he's in hell, and now status and wealth are gone. Now there's no him left, right? Now he's got no identity. He was a rich man and nothing, but now it's gone. He's nameless because when you take everything away, when you take his status and wealth away, he has no identity left. What's the alternative? You know, when you take everything away from your life, and hell, you know, hell's a place where everything is taken away. If somebody takes away everything, what's the alternative? Uh, have you, has anybody ever heard of Soren Kierkegaard? Wonderful Danish philosopher. I love him. He, he wrote a book um, called Sickness Unto Death. And in that book, he wrestles with a definition of sin. And he, he defines sin as building your identity on anything but God. So he's wrestling to get a good definition of sin. And, you know, the classic definition of sin, which he agrees with, is breaking God's law. But Kierkegaard says, but it's got to be more than that because you got to ask the question, why? Why do we break God's law? Like, what's at the heart of it? And he brings up the point of the Pharisees. You guys remember the Pharisees in Jesus' day? Yeah. The Pharisees, they, they follow all of the law, right? Yet, they're lost. Why? Well, because when Pharisees seek to obey the law, why are they doing it? They're doing it because... They're trying to be their own saviors. They're trying to be their own lords because they're seeking their own salvation their own way because they're trying to put God in a certain position where, you know, because I'm behaving so good, God has to bless me. God has to answer my prayers. God has to give me a good life. God has to take me to heaven. So when Pharisees seek to obey the law, they're trying to use obeying the law to build their life and their identity. Not on God, but on their moral performance. So that's where they get their pride. That's where they get their source of identity from their moral performance. And it's destroying their character. I remember we went to Israel and I was on the Temple Mount. We got to visit and the, the tour guide said, this is right where Jesus was in Matthew 
when in, in the week of passion, he's back in Israel and he's teaching. And there's that moment in, in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. You're just like the whited sepulchers. And if you stand on this place on the mountain in Israel, the Temple Mountain, you look over on the mountain across the way from you, it's covered, just like the whole hillside, covered with these beautiful limestone and granite tombs. And I'm telling you, when the sun is starting to set and the light hits it, it's brilliant. It's gorgeous. But what's Jesus say? He says, woe to you Pharisees. You're just like those tombs. On the outside, you're brilliant. You're beautiful. But in the inside, you're full of death. You're full of dead men's bones. They're filled with pride. They're filled with self-righteousness and ravening and rigidity. And they eventually begin wreaking havoc in their life. Why? Because sin is building your identity on anything besides God. Good things, even, becoming ultimate things. I think Kierkegaard is being radically biblical when he says that. And I think what he's saying is this. If you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, if you look at anything in this life and you say, if I have that, if I could just get that, then I have importance and value. Then I'll have made it. Then I'll have arrived. But if I don't have that, then I'm nothing. Money. That's an easy one, right? Career, success, looks, fashion, talents, abilities, relationships. How about your parents' approval? Or as a parent, having kids that everybody admires and adores. We seek power, we seek sex, control, approval, comfort. If you make any of those things more fundamental to your significance and security than the love and knowledge of God, then you may believe in the God of the Bible. You may worship the God of the Bible. You may pray to the God of the Bible. You may show up to church on Sunday, but your faith, like the bedrock, the justification of your life, the roots of your identity, what you really are worshiping is something else entirely. And that starts in your heart, a cosmic fire. Fire and darkness are Vivid metaphors that describe what happens when we replace the presence of God at the center of our life for something else. Darkness. Isolation, separation from the light of the world. Disintegration, fire, falling apart, separation from the source of life. You say, what are you talking about? All right, well, I think in our culture we know a lot about addictions. Um, We watch TV shows about them. In our society, it's huge. It's a big issue. The inward and outward devastation that addiction creates and wreaks in our lives. Um, and addiction consists of certain elements. Uh, one of those is disintegration. Because as the addiction grows, you need more and more of the addictive substance to produce less and less of the high, the kick, the satisfaction. You know what I'm saying? You're like Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction, right? You're just trying and trying. You're chasing it. You can't get it. Eventually, that leads to isolation. You start to lie. You start to hide. You start to defend yourself. You blame everyone and everything for your problems. Nobody understands me. Everyone's against me. Denial. There's this growing inability to see what's really happening. You're getting more and more out of touch with reality. We've all known loved ones. I think every one of us has known people, known loved ones in our life that have suffered at the hands of substance abuse and addiction. It's devastating, isn't it? But wait, what if 
What if the Iron Giant is right? How many of you have seen the movie The Iron Giant? It's an awesome movie. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Animated movie. And The Iron Giant says something in it. He says this line, he says, souls never die. Souls can't die. If he's right, and that's exactly what the Bible says, that your personal consciousness, your soul, goes on forever and ever into eternity, even after death. If the Iron Giant's right, and, and Kierkegaard's right, that every single person is addicted, that we've, we've grounded our very identity, we've taken our very self from something besides God, something that can never give us the satisfaction we hope it will, if we're all addicted in the ultimate sense, like Kierkegaard says, and if our soul goes on forever and ever, what does that mean? Well, C.S. Lewis put those two together, and this is what he says. This is a long quote, but let it sink in. And if you're better with reading it, read it. And if not, just close your eyes and listen. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever. And that must either be true or false. Now, there are a great many things that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 80 years or so. But I'd better better bother about if I'm going to live on forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime would not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You, You may even criticize it in yourself, and you wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. That's the fire. That's the disintegration and isolation, the fire and darkness. You watch a log in the fire, what's happening? It's falling apart, it's disintegrating. And it's one thing to love things in your life, for instance. But often, I think, without realizing something really subtle can happen, things in our life, careers, relationships, can, can actually creep up and start to enslave us. It can enslave us. How? We begin to find our identity in them. For instance, it's okay to love somebody. How many of you guys want to be loved? Yeah. I love those lyrics. I want you to want me. I need you to need me, right? It goes beyond all of a sudden. It goes beyond just I want to be loved and all of a sudden I'm finding my identity. I'm finding my source of security and my very worth and value from something like that. And what happens when there's problems? What happens when that kind of relationship falls apart? Instead of just being sad, you're devastated. You want to throw yourself off a bridge. There's no reason to live anymore because that thing gave me my ultimate value. Your good things, they begin to disintegrate you. They begin to isolate you so that when something gets in the way of them, instead of just being afraid, you become paralyzed. Instead of just being angry, you become actively bitter. Instead of just being wounded or hurt, you become devastated. And just, instead of just being sorrowful, you hate yourself forever and ever. That's the fire. Do you see it in yourself? Do you see where it's going to take you? 
And most of all, denial. C.S. Lewis says this too. I love this quote. He's always saying, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. From the inside. That's the whole idea of hell. The attic says, yeah, I know this isn't very good, you know, but I just can't imagine living some other way. And nobody even understands. Besides, I'm not as bad as you say. You know, I can handle it. That's hell, right? And if that's the case, and I think it is, then right here in this text, we have confirmation. Look at, look at the insanity. Look how out of touch with reality people in hell are. Look at this. The commentators have noticed for a long time that the rich man is astonishingly blind, in denial, filled with blame shifting. Lazarus is up in heaven. The rich man is in hell. And what's he doing? He's still ordering Lazarus around, isn't he? Hey, could you just tell Lazarus to go give me some water, bring it down to me? That'd be awesome. He's ordering Lazarus around. He still expects Lazarus to be a servant. And notice something else. He doesn't ask to get out of hell. He just tries to get Lazarus into hell. And he strongly insinuates that God just didn't give him enough information. You know, if you could just send somebody from the dead to my five brothers and give them the info. What's that? Hint, hint. I didn't get enough information, you know. Nobody understands me. Nobody loves me. This place sucks, but it's really not so bad, you know. Besides, I don't want to be up there with all that humbug. But would you please send somebody down here to just give me a break, right? The addict. Summary. Hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. Hell is just your freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever, disintegrating, 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 refusing to admit, admit what it is. That's why this idea you may have in your mind that God like just throws people into hell, like it's this giant pit and people are like clawing to get out and say, let me out. And God's like, no, right? <laughs> you shall not pass. It's hell for you. How can a loving God send people to hell? I love what John Piper says. He says, guys, death is like a car. It takes you where you want to go. The truth is, God doesn't stand in the way of our choices. It's like someone who's gone their whole life saying, God, I have no need for you. I'm self-sufficient. I'm a self-made man. I'm going to do what I think is good and right and perfect, unlike what the song said today. God is the only one who does what's good and right and perfect. I, I'm going to do what I think, you know. Thanks, God, but no thanks. And when you get into eternity, God says, okay, I'll let you live out your desire. I loved you. I tried to show myself to you. I, I showed you your need for me, but you spent your whole life walking away from me. So now you get into eternity, you're going to live out your desire. C.S. Lewis says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. That's what Romans 124 says, right? God gave them up to their desires. That's what you want, okay? You know, in the end, all God does with people is give them what they want most, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? C.S. Lewis says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. In the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins at all costs and give them a fresh start? He did that at Calvary. To forgive them even when they don't ask for forgiveness? To leave them alone? That's hell. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, 
thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. And side note, you know, understanding the nature of hell has been key for me in my life, in my walk with Christ, in my walk as a pastor. I think it's key for all of us because seeing everyone, including me, as spiritual addicts, seeing everyone, like, apart from God's grace as somebody who's going to find something to latch my identity onto and build my life on, is, it's just key because, like, that's how we help others. That's how we help ourselves. That's how we learn. You have to see and understand the seriousness of what this doctrine's saying. Because I think what happens in most of our lives in, in Christianity is, you know, we see the fires start to come out, and we try to blow them out real quick, and then the fires come up, and we try to blow them out. What we need is the grace of God and the gospel to help put out the fires, not our good works. You have to deal with them with the gospel and grace because the flames are going to come up again and again, so it's helpful to know what they are and what will extinguish them. So let me ask you, to, in order to help you with that, who are you really? Do you have a core identity? Do you have a name based in what God has done for you in Jesus? Based on being a child of the king? Based on his mission and purpose in your life? Based on getting into the new heavens and the new earth? Have you got a fundamental core identity that's there no matter what? No matter what happens, you know who you are. See, there's a stability you can have. Do you, do you have that? Or are you just an artist? Are you just... A businessman, businesswoman? Are you just a student? Are you just a mom? Are you just a dad? Or have you based your identity on Christ? Here's the, here's the key question. Are you willing to look into yourself as deep as this doctrine is calling you to look? Point number two. So without understanding the doctrine of hell, you can't really know your own heart. Quickly, number two, understanding what the Bible says about hell is crucial for living at peace in the world. You say, what? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, there's a lot of people out there. I talked to people this week as I was studying for this question. And one of the things that comes up, the objections, is, is this. They say, uh, I'm, I'm kind of scared of people who believe in hell because if you believe in a God of judgment and the doctrine of hell, it means you'll disdain classes of people and you'll eventually oppress people. Right? And that's an understandable objection. Wendy Kaminer um, wrote this article after she had done an interview with Rick Warren from Purpose Driven Life. And she really liked Pastor Rick. She really liked him. But she still said this in the article. She said, uh, it was in a magazine called The Nation. She said this, his faith is inherently divisive. At the end of the day, non-Christians, however devout, are lost. What are the prospects of equal citizenship for those of us damned by our refusal to be born again? What's she saying? She's saying, you can't treat us as equal citizens if you believe that we can't be saved, if you believe we're going to go to hell. You're going to oppress us. You're going to disdain us. You're going to eventually marginalize us and push us to the sides of society. You'll judge us. And that's a, that's a reasonable objection, isn't it? Have you, have you guys heard something like this before? Yeah. And I think what this doesn't seem to understand is what the Bible really says about hell. We just saw hell isn't something opposed by God in violence, is it? It's not. In fact, it's intriguing. If you look at verse 25 of the text, Abraham's talking to the rich man. And this guy is just, he's just stupid. He's just out of touch. He's lost in hell. And what does he call him? Does he, you evil sinner. Is that what Abraham says? No. He says son. Son. And commentators have noted that there's pathos there. 
sadness. There's a sense of loss and tragedy. Jesus, Abraham, Moses, nobody who's godly looks at people on the way to fire with disdain. Especially, especially because, like, I mean, if you really get this today, it's, it's really impossible to look at somebody else who's different from you, who's on their way to the fire. First of all, because we don't know who is, right? Secondly, because if we really look deep within ourselves, we see the fire there to begin with. How can we be judgmental toward anyone else, even if you did know? But God himself, even in Ezekiel, God himself says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. So it doesn't understand the doctrine of hell, but this objection also doesn't understand what um, Tim Keller points out, that Miroslav Volf says in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. It's a great book. Um, Miroslav Volf is a, a professor at, I believe it's Yale. Professor at Yale. And he, in this book, he says, um, something amazing because he grew up in war-torn Croatia. He saw the most broken parts of human depravity as people are alleging violence on one another, burning down houses, murdering, slaughtering, raping, killing, pillaging. He saw it all firsthand as he was growing up there. Okay? And, um, and he saw people would get stuck in this cycle of violence. Retaliation, Vengeance, retaliation, vengeance. You did this to me, I'm gonna do this to you. And the cycle just builds and it grows. What do you do about that? What do you do about a cycle like that? How do you break it? In his book, he says that believing in a just God of judgment is the only way to end the cycle of violence. That retaliation isn't fueled by belief in a God of judgment, but the lack of belief in a God of judgment. And here's a quote, he says this. Listen to his advice. If God were not angry at injustice, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The only way to make an end of violence is to insist that all judgment comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence actually requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home to imagine that human nonviolence somehow results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die, along with many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If you talk to people who have gone through incredible loss at the hands of others, violence, hurt, pain, burned homes, loved ones raped and ruined, violence, how are you going to keep them from picking up the sword and taking vengeance? How are you going to keep them from entering into this cycle of vengeance and retaliation? What are you going to say? Well, you know, violence doesn't really solve anything. Is that going to hit their heart? Is that going to really make a dent in their wanting to jump in and see justice done? No way. It's moralizing. It won't. It's the kind of moralizing that ends up being demoralizing. It, it, it doesn't help. It shows no concern for justice. Anybody who's ever been terribly wronged, and I talk to people in counseling sessions all the time that have gone through abuse and things as a kid, and you know what results in their life? A sense of justice, a need for justice. Why? Because we're created in the image of a just God who seeks justice. There's something right about it. And Wolf says the only resource he knows powerful enough to both pacify the human heart's desire for justice 
and to keep us from getting sucked into that cycle of violence and retaliation is this. There's a God and he will put everything right. He will make an end to violence. He will judge the world. He will judge the living and the dead. He will restore and make all things new. Wolf is saying like, if you think not believing in God or not believing in the biblical God of judgment is gonna keep people from being sucked into the cycle, you're cooked. You don't, if you don't believe somebody is gonna make things right, then you're going to try. You're gonna pick up the sword and you'll get sucked in. Therefore, if you don't believe that the doctrine of God's judgment results in living a peaceful life on earth, he says, you've had a sheltered life. You haven't experienced the kind of violence that most people have around the world. Belief in a God of judgment is crucial it's about the only living resource strong enough to help us. Wolf says to help me as a Croatian live in peace on the earth. So hell shows us our own hearts and inner struggles. Hell and believing in a God of judgment is the only thing strong enough to help us live in peace on earth. And, and point number three in closing, understanding what the Bible says about hell is crucial for knowing the love of God. And I know you say, huh? It doesn't make sense because like judgment and loving God don't seem to go together. It's not. It's not, it's not crazy. Okay, I'll explain how. Look, look at the end of this passage. What does the rich man ask Abraham for in the end of this passage? He says, could you send Lazarus to my five brothers? Raise him from the dead. I mean, imagine if they actually saw Lazarus crawling out of the ground. And he says, there's a hell, repent. Be like, oh shoot, <laughs> I'm gonna repent, Okay. Yes, okay, better get to it. I don't want to go to hell. But Abraham says that will never work. In fact, he says, specifically, he says they won't be convinced. And convinced here is more than just rationale. Convinced here, I mean, because that would be just like, oh gosh, I'm convinced. Yeah, I saw him. He showed, like, I have a letter from my brother right here. It says, watch out, you know. Hell, hell is real and it's singed with fire. I know, you know. But they won't be convinced in the ultimate sense. What's Abraham saying? He's saying this. He's saying fear. Fear of hell, fear of damnation will never change the fundamental structures of your heart. It won't work. Ironically, fear of hell will never keep you out of it. I've got to put out the fire. How do I put out the fire? Well, what is the fire? What's wrong with us in the world? Self-centeredness. Self-absorption. Me, 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 me. Me over you. Me instead of you. Me, self. That's what's wrong. So scaring people with the fear of hell may get them to act good, may even get them to believe in God. But why? Why do they respond this way? Isn't it for their own sex? Isn't it just more selfishness? I mean, moral. it's moral selfishness, but it's just selfishness. Aren't they just doing it for their own sake? Are they doing it for God's sake? Are they doing it just for goodness sake? Just to please God? No, they're, they're not. They're doing it for them. They're just using God. If I live a really good life, then God will have to give me what I'm basing my identity on, the success, the person of my dreams. God will have to take me to heaven. I'll avoid hell if I do this. In other words, God is still the means to an end. In other words, they're using God for what they really built their identity on. You go to church, you read your Bible. Why? Out of fear? Are you doing it to get something from God? What are you doing? 
When we do it for the wrong motivation, you know what we're doing? We're just turning up the flames in our life. We're just rearranging our hearts. It's kind of like when I tell Ivan and Lily to clean their rooms. Sometimes they do really well. Other times you walk in and you're like, hey, it looks clean at first. And then you start finding where they hid everything and just rearranged, right? I never did that as a kid. I don't know where they get that from. You're not actually experiencing heart transformation, though. You may look different on the outside, but just like the Pharisees, on the outside you may look beautiful, but on the inside it's full of death, brokenness, and fire. So how do we change? What does change the fundamental structures of our heart? What transforms us from being God's enemies to God's friends? One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. says this, the only force... Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And he's right. Love. Radical, unconditional, counter-conditional love. The love of God is the only thing that can transform our hearts. Love's the only thing that can transform you. From using God as a means to, to loving him just for him. That kind of love shocks our hearts into a whole new way of living. Well, where do we get that kind of love? The rich man in hell says, man, if somebody would just come back from the dead, then people would believe. And Abraham says, no. It's almost supposed to make you think of something, isn't it? Didn't Jesus rise from the dead? Yeah. Isn't Jesus rising from the dead enough? No. If Jesus just, I hear this question too, what if Jesus just, why doesn't he just show up in the clouds and tell everybody? I am God. Angels, trumpets. Everybody's like, oh, he's God. What would happen? It would result in fear. Okay, where do I need to sign up? I don't want to go to hell. He's, he's God. I get it. Okay, cool. Where do I sign? What do I do? Fear. How do I avoid hell? And actually, the Bible says that'll happen one day. We just went through Philippians a little bit ago. It said, Philippians says, one day every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, things under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it won't save them. Why? They believe it, don't they? Yeah, but James says, you believe, that's great. The devil believes, and he trembles. Believing's not enough. It's not enough just to believe or just to obey out of fear or out of ulterior motives to get something else from God. Jesus says, no, it has to be love. That's the only thing that'll truly transform you. That, that was the only thing that will save you ultimately. And the key is this, knowing why I died. Do you know why Jesus died? Where do you find it? Well, Abraham says in this parable, he says, Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. You have to know why I died and rose again. What does it say in Moses and the prophets? Because it's the only place we're gonna find out why Jesus died and understand his love. Isaiah 53.10 says this. It was God's will to crush him. So when we looked upon him, we were appalled. Jesus was disfigured beyond human appearance and recognition. His form was marred beyond human likeness. For the Lord made him a guilt offering, but the results of his suffering he will see and be satisfied. You won't know how much Jesus loves you unless you understand how much he suffered on the cross. 
What did he suffer on the cross? Martin Lloyd-Jones is an incredible preacher at the turn of the century, and he said this um, example that I've, I've loved. I've held on to. It's really helped me out. He says, imagine one of your friends comes to you and say, hey, man, I went by your house the other day, and a bill came due, and I paid it for you. How do you respond? The answer is, I don't know how to respond until I know how much the debt was, right? Like, if, if they were like, a bill came, it, it said postage due, I paid you 50 cents. You'd be like, high five. Thank you. I'll Venmo you, you know? But say, say the IRS finally caught up to you after 20 years of back taxes. Say you had an enormous debt you could never pay on your own. As Lloyd-Jones says, until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or fall down on the ground and kiss his feet. What debt did Jesus Christ pay for you? What did he experience on the cross? This is why I believe hell is crucial for knowing the love of God because unless you believe in hell, you'll never know and understand how much Jesus loves you, how much Jesus values you, how much he paid to set you free and to have you for himself. Your heart won't grasp it. Why did Jesus speak about hell more than everyone else in the Bible combined? Why? Because on the cross, he took it. He took it on himself. The fire fell down into his heart. That's why the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. He took hell on himself. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. I have a grandma who passed away several years ago, and before she did, she had rheumatoid arthritis, and her fingers would point all kinds of directions and they were crooked and her back was hunched over and she lived in excruciating pain. She hadn't always lived like that. But one day it started, the, the soreness in the joints. And then it started to transform. Have you, has anybody ever experienced somebody in your life with, with something like that? Yeah, it's, it's painful, it's horrible. But every day she was able to adapt a little bit to the pain. But can you imagine what my grandma would have gone through if in a moment... She had gone from a super healthy, vibrant, young body to being fully crunched over and crooked and, and hurt. How much pain would that be to experience that in a moment? The results of sin and pain in your life? The Bible says that that's what happened to Jesus. In fact, infinitely worse. He went from being the perfect, righteous lamb of God, perfect health, perfect spirituality, perfect connection with his father, to becoming sin, becoming death, becoming the essence of disease. He was broken. He was marred. He was separated from his father. In fact, it says it pleased God to crush him. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To, to love, love somebody, it hurts when you lose them. To lose a friend and their love, it hurts. To lose a child, a spouse, it hurts more, right? I mean, God made him sin. I mean, it, we, we don't even understand. The deeper and the greater the relationship, the more devastating and agonizing the loss of love is. Jesus was separated from his father, from his father's love on the cross. Both the father and son experienced the most unspeakable pain for our sakes. Jesus experienced agony. He experienced disintegration. He experienced isolation infinitely greater than you and I could ever experience. Infinitely greater than what we would experience in an eternity in hell. 
Jesus took on the hell, the isolation, the disintegration we deserve on himself. Why? Because he loves you. And unless you see that he didn't just experience physical pain, he didn't just experience emotional pain or psychological pain, but the pain that he had on the cross, unless you see the real measure of it, the hell he experienced for you, unless you believe in hell, you'll never know how much he loves you. Never. Ironically, when people get rid of a God of judgment and hell in order to make God more loving, they actually make him less. When someone says to you, yeah, I believe in a God of love, not a God of judgment, ask them, what did it cost your God to love you? You know what they normally say? Cost? He just loves me. He just loves everybody. Now, I can, I can honor a God like that. I can, I can, you know, be glad for a God like that. I'm sure it would change me in some ways. But if, if I want to be transformed, if I want to sense his wild love around me, if I want wonder and praise and love and transformation and freedom, if I want to be able to sing like we did earlier, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, I have to believe in hell. The biblical doctrine of hell, if you don't really understand it, you could, you, you could use it as a pretext for cruelty. Well, God's judgmental, God's cruel, therefore I get to be cruel and judgmental. If you misunderstand it, but if you really understand what the Bible's teaching about hell, to really read about it, to understand how all the plot lines of the Bible regarding justice come together in Jesus on the cross Jesus Christ, who was the judge of the earth, who came not to bring judgment, but came to bear judgment for you and for I. If you understand that, if you grasp that, it's gonna equip you to live at peace with other people, with a God who did this for you, and with yourself. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this amazing truth that through Moses and the prophets we can learn why Jesus died and rose. How on the cross he descended into hell. He received that fire. This, the same fire we see inside of us, the addiction, the brokenness, all those things, he received that fire and the penalty due to us so that by your grace we can embrace us. You can pardon us. You can forgive us. Put your spirit in this, Lord. Put that fire out. By making yourself, through your Holy Spirit, the center of our lives. Free us, God. Transform us with your love today. Whether it's the first time or the 101st time. In Jesus' name, amen.